Our text this morning will come from the last chapter of the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, and the text will be verses 11 through 14, but for the context and because the chapter is short, I'm going to read all of chapter 6 for us, which can be found on page 813 in your pew Bible. And as you turn there, I bring you greetings from the saints at Redeemer OPC in Atlanta, Georgia, and from my family that's here with me today. My name's Ben Stahl, for those of you that I haven't met yet, and I'm a ruling elder in Atlanta at the church there. I had the pleasure of meeting your pastor and his wife almost 15 years ago when he was finishing up seminary in Philadelphia. We attended church together there for a year, and we met and reconnected at General Assembly this past year, and it's been a joyful reunion these, these past months. So we are I am delighted to be here, my family is delighted to be here, and it's a a joy to worship God with you. Let's now turn our attention to this sixth chapter of the book of Galatians, where we will focus our time on verses 11 through 14. Give your attention once again to the reading of God's holy word. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. See with what large letters I've written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me. For I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let us pray. Our God and Father, you have told us in your word to seek your face And so, O Lord, it is this morning that we seek your face, and we ask once again that as we do so, that you might fill us with the Holy Spirit, that we might understand your word, 
that we might apply it in our lives, that we might be convicted by it, that we might receive all joy in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. As the pages of Scripture open, we come to that third chapter of Genesis, where we know well the promise of grace through the seed of the woman comes in its very early form. And it unfolds all through Scripture until Jesus Christ comes. But something else is announced in that 15th verse of Genesis chapter 3. It's the announcement of a declaration of war. A declaration of war by God himself. For he says in those opening words, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The seed of the serpent, the devil, would be at war always with the seed of the woman who would in fullness of time come, Jesus Christ the Lord. This warfare is given to us in different pictures with different words throughout the scripture. It's hard to go through one book of the Bible without seeing the warfare on display for us. Moses, in his 30th chapter of Deuteronomy, he tells us that God has set before us two things, life and death. Good and evil, heaven and hell, if you would. And he always gives that imperative, choose life, and the Lord is your life. Cling to life, not the devil who is dying and leads to death. As you unpack the scripture further, you see that, uh, that, you see that coming out more. Joshua says the very same thing. Who are you going to serve today? The gods of the nations, the gods of the Amorites? You choose. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord Jesus lays out that very same picture as he ministers in the New Testament in his earthly ministry. He shows to us that there are in his kingdom wheat and also tares. Then the tares are always seeking to swallow up the wheat. There are sheep and there are goats. And as we go even on into the scripture to that very last pages of Revelation, we see that warfare pictured for us in its climax when the devil and all his followers and that great evil prophet are thrown into the bottomless pit of hell forever and Christ and his saints rule forevermore. Well, Galatians gives us a picture of that warfare in these verses from chapter 6. And Paul gives us a picture with these words, the flesh and the cross. Two religions, two ways One of those ways is broad, and it leads to destruction. One of those ways is narrow, and it leads to everlasting life. And as Paul concludes this book, he does so by drawing attention to his concluding remarks in this way, in verse 11, see with what large letters I have written to you in my own hand. If you know something of Paul's epistles, you know that he often had a scribe writing his words for him. Sometimes he would write the conclusion to the epistle. But here he's either writing the whole conclusion or he's written the whole book and he's written it in large letters because it's so important that the saints at Galatia, that the church understands that this message is from God. He leaves it to no other. He writes it himself and he writes it with great words and he's going to conclude his whole book by summarizing it, by showing the religion of the flesh compared to the religion of the cross. Look at this religion of the flesh In verse 12, there are five distinguishing characteristics that we see here. Paul is eager to bring out that there are as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh. These compel you to be circumcised. 
Now, we need to know something a little bit about the book of Galatians. And we learned some of that actually in the book of Acts on Paul's missionary journeys. For as Paul went out throughout all the regions of the Gentiles, and as he went throughout Galatia and that whole region, he went preaching the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But as he went, he was not alone. There were people that followed him. There were Judaizers in Acts 15 verse 1 tells us that they followed Paul preaching another message. Paul calls it another gospel as if there were another gospel. It's no gospel at all, children. He's using that to make as a figure of speech to let you know there is nothing else. And they preached this, that unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. It was for that reason and that message, that dispute of life life-changing and eternal importance that that Jerusalem council was called in Acts chapter 15. What is the gospel? Is it circumcision or works plus Jesus that saves? Or is it, as Paul said, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ alone, we shall be saved. Which is it? Well, Paul says here, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these, desi- these would compel you to be circumcised. This is what the flesh and the religion of the flesh, which is the religion of darkness, the religion of the world, it creeps into the church. This is what they're always doing. They're seeking to make a good showing of the flesh. In this case, circumcision. But it should not be lost on us that just the chapter before in Galatians 5, we read of the many deeds of the flesh Circumcision is what Paul draws to at the end, but read of those deeds of the flesh in verse 19 of chapter 5. The works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not Inherit the kingdom of God. Those that desire to make a good showing in the flesh compel you to be circumcised. They want to make their boast in their body. Their God is themselves. They worship the image they see in the mirror. And they would compel you to be circumcised. I hope that this sounds very familiar to our present day. For it's exactly what the world desires of us today. That we would desire to make a good showing in the flesh. That we would boast in the flesh. That we would be filled with all pride in ourselves. We who are dying, we who are perishing, we cannot, who cannot live or breathe or have our being apart from God who gives to us our life. They want us to boast in our flesh. Because they want to make a good show in the flesh. Don't we see this in so many ways? But, but there's more. There is a second reason that they would have you do this only as the second half of verse 12 says only that they might not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. There's another way of saying this boast in the flesh because we're ashamed of the name of Christ. They're ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They think it is foolishness that Jesus Christ died on the cross. They have no part in him and they want no part in him. And so they boast somewhere else. They boast in themselves. Their God is their belly. They lust after the things that they see. They do not want to suffer persecution. And so they boast in the flesh. Paul 
brings this great focus of the world into the visible church by talking about circumcision, doesn't he? There is certainly the flesh in the world that he speaks of in chapter five, but he brings it into the church and he warns us as the church of Jesus Christ that there are even those inside the church that would seek to find their boasting in the flesh because they're ashamed of the name of Christ and desire not to face persecution. They profess a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. They want friendship with the world. We've seen these in so many compromises over the years, haven't we? You could go back to any time in church history and see the compromises with the world. In the present, we see it very explicitly with the flesh, don't we? We see that there are many churches that are trying to change God's moral law into something that, that can be taken or left, that can be obeyed or dismissed. And so rather than than seeking to be like Christ and be holy like he is holy, they say, it's okay, you can be a gay Christian. You can celebrate pride and homosexuality and still be in Christ, boast in that, and we'll give you the front pew so that all can admire you for that great stand in the flesh. Why? Because they're ashamed of the cross of Christ. And in this day, as we stand for Christ and for his glory, it's going to bring persecution Be ready. They persecuted. They crucified the Savior. Won't they persecute his followers? Will you be ashamed or will you stand firm on the on the solid rock that is Christ Jesus, our Lord? The world, the flesh, the kingdom of Satan, it boasts in the flesh because it does not want to suffer persecution for the word of God. But it goes further than that. There's another reason. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law. They reject the word of God themselves. They would say, be circumcised because that's what the word of God says. They abuse the word of God. They misuse the holy things of God and they would lead you astray. But even they themselves, as you look at them, they're not following the word. Those Judaizers were trying to act very righteous. We have Moses as our father. We follow him. But when you look at their lives, as Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, you saw that they weren't even following the word that they professed. They were giving their their wives a bill of divorcement and leaving them and abandoning them and going and marrying others. They were committing adultery in their hearts. They were calling their their brother fool and Raka and all these things worthy of hellfire. They weren't keeping the word of God themselves. And yet they would compel you to boast in the flesh. What a strange and a a foolish thing. But this is the very root of the problem, isn't it? The root of the problem is not today a a moral issue of homosexuality or abortion, as we talked about in Sunday school today, or fornication or all these other depravities that we see. Isn't the root of the issue unbelief? The root of the issue is that they do not believe the word that has been spoken gloriously by God through his prophets in time past and in these last days through his son. They don't believe it. This is the root of the issue. Unbelief. They would compel you to boast in the flesh, but they don't even keep the word. That they claim to believe. They do not keep it. If you were to think back, I I assume many of you are familiar with the formation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in 1936. Going closer and closer each year to 100 years of this denomination. What was the reason that Machen and others were kicked out of the PCUSA and the OPC was formed? Was it because, as is the case today, the PCUSA had abortion doctors speaking at their general assemblies? Was it because they had homosexual clergy in the pulpit? Was Machen kicked out for that reason? No, he wasn't. Those moral issues weren't there in the church. It was this reason. Machen said that to be a Christian, and you don't have to be a Christian, but if you are a Christian and you call yourself a Christian, you must believe that the word of God is inerrant. 
that it is what it says it is, that God is who he says he is, that in God's holy and inerrant word, as Jesus is declared to be risen from the dead in the flesh, a Christian must believe that. A Christian must believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin, that Jesus did and is able to do great miracles, that he, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and said, come forth, that Lazarus did come forth, that that atonement that took place on the cross, that it was a substitutionary atonement. Those were the things. Belief in the Word of God. Machen believed the Word of God, and all the many Christians believed the Word of God. That was the root of the issue. And once... That belief in the word of God was cast out of the PCUSA. Then all the moral depravity flowed from it like we see today. Belief is the root thing. All the moral issues flow from the heart that does not believe in God and boasts in its flesh instead of God. The religion of the world, it boasts in the flesh because it's ashamed of the cross and it doesn't even keep the word. But there's even more. The fourth thing that the flesh does is they desire... To have you join them. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised. They want you to join them. The dead love this, that more people would be dead. They want you to perish like they're perishing. The devil rejoices when one would hear the word of God and reject it. He hears that parable of the sower, and he hears of the seed on the wayside and on the thorny soil and on the rocky soil, and he rejoices in that seed because he loves this. That others would perish with him. And those that follow him, his demons and all those teachers of false religions, they would desire to have you join them. Isn't this the message of our day? Come be an ally. You don't have to you don't have to be circumcised. That was that was a long time. Just be an ally of sin. Just rejoice in sin. Just just accept it when your loved one or your own child who was born a boy now tells you to call him by a girl's name. Just accept it. Just be an ally. It's okay. Rejoice in that. How many are doing that even today? That's what the religion of the flesh wants. It desires to have you join them. And how tempting it is. It's tempting to want friendship with the world, isn't it? Children, in, if you're in school, if any of you are in Christian school, or maybe some are in public school, but even in homeschool, when you go around with other homeschoolers, don't you have a temptation to look just like the world? You want, you want your friends, even your unbelieving friends, to think well of you. So there's this great temptation to look like it, the world. Churches face the same temptation. They want to be packed. They want the world to like them. They want the news media to, to lift them high, to play out their Christmas messages where they have no Christ and no hope and no joy, but celebrate the creature instead of the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's what the world desires for you to join in. And the temptation is real to do it because there is sometimes that desire to have friendship with the world, to embrace sin, to stop fighting, to give up the warfare, to just give in to sin, to no longer press back against the deeds of the flesh, stop the mortification. In a way, that's the message of the liberal church today. Cease mortifying the flesh when God says, mortify the deeds of the flesh and be holy as you are holy And pray, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. He who told us to pray that is able to do it. Don't give up. Keep mortifying the flesh. But why? Why would they do all these things? Why do they desire you to make a good show in the flesh? Why do they desire you to be ashamed of the cross? Why do they desire you to reject God's word and to join them? Well, isn't it for this reason at the end of verse 13 that they may boast in your flesh? 
They desire to boast in your downfall. This is everywhere. Pride comes before destruction and look at the pride rallies, parades through every city in the world. They desire you to join them because when that destruction comes, they don't want to be left alone. They want you there with them. And that destruction is surely coming. It always comes. In time past throughout history, we see that after pride, destruction. After pride, darkness. Let not the church go with them. They rejoice in evil. They hate what is good. As we read earlier from Proverbs chapter 1, they say to you, Come, let us lie in wait to shed innocent blood. Come, let's all have one purse. Let's go destroy others because there's joy in the destruction of people. That's the desire. That's the great goal. They not only have pleasure in them, but they not only do them, but have pleasure in them that do them. As the end of Romans 1 tells us. I could share perhaps just a very short observation. As I mentioned in Sunday school, being at an abortion clinic and seeing all these people standing outside, volunteers, to encourage mothers and fathers to go and to murder their innocent children. They rejoice as they go do it. They lead them in. They hold their hand and put their arm around them. And when those mothers come out, who went in with living children, with living souls, and they come out with no child but the mother of a murdered child, do you know what the wicked do? They rejoice. They sing. They dance. If it sounds too wonderful for you, come up to Atlanta and you'll see it with your own eyes. They rejoice in the destruction of innocent life and the shedding of innocent blood because that's what the world does. That's what their father, the devil, does. He seeks for you to follow the flesh that he might rejoice ultimately in your downfall. But what's the end of that? The end of that is death. If you live by the flesh, you will die. Romans 8 and verse 13. There is no life in the flesh. All those that hate me, says the wisdom of Proverbs, love death and are on the way to death. Suddenly, the dart strikes through the liver. Suddenly, they close their eyes on earth and they open their eyes in the fires of hell. Suddenly, their greatest desire is no longer the things of the flesh. But it's like that, that rich man in hell, as he looked up at Abraham, he wanted just one drop of water from the fingertip of Lazarus. That was the lottery ticket for him in hell. A drop of water from someone's fingertip. And he couldn't get even that. The terrors of hell and of death are real. That is the end of the flesh. There is nothing good in it. If you're tempted to go after the flesh, keep its end always in your mind. Death and suffering, hell and torments, as Jesus himself said, that place where the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies, it's a place of great evil, great terror, great pain and suffering and gnashing of teeth. And all that follow their father, the devil, all that follow the flesh and boast in the flesh, they are on their way there. They're built on the sand and the storm is coming even now. And the house will not stand on the sand. So the prophet Isaiah asks, why do you spend your money, your time for things that do not profit? Why do you pursue the things that do not offer satisfaction? Why will you listen to the prophets who cry out peace, peace when the very enemy is on the doorstep waiting to destroy? There is no peace in the flesh. Children, young people, singles, beware, be warned. There is no peace at the end of this path. Its way is broad. Many are on it. Many compel you to go. But the end thereof is destruction. It's like a cliff and all who are on it fall off it into a lake of fire. This is not the way to go. 
but come, come to the living water. Come to the bread of life, Jesus Christ. He is the one that provides satisfaction. In him is abiding peace because he is the prince of peace. He alone can give it. He alone provides it. He says to the weary, to the heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you rest. Because the glorious news of this scripture that is declared to you today, as surely you know, is that the Lord does not lead us, leave us in death and following after the flesh. But God, who is rich in mercy and abundant in grace, in the fullness of time, he sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, to die in the place of sinners. And that's where Paul brings us. He concludes all his warnings of Galatians in those two verses on the flesh. And then he brings us, he brings us to what the Christian should boast in. The Christian must boast in nothing else but, as verse 14 says, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the Christian's boast, and God forbid that we boast in anything else. One of the great challenges of this portion of Scripture is with such a monumental theology being presented to us in a verse. The theology of the cross and of Christ and of his suffering and the glory that is ours in his and the boasting. Where does one begin? And I confess that I cannot in these short minutes give you the fullness of the theology of, of the cross. But I think we can see from the book of Galatians those things, or at least some of those things that Paul is most concerned for the church to know, the church that is always tempted to follow after the flesh and the lust thereof. He brings us to these things, but first in the, in the negative, in the negative, when we speak of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, God is not telling us or speaking to us of objects, of wood, of stone, of gold, that we would maybe hang around our necks or that might be, might be bowed down to like the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church or the Coptic Church. They have crosses everywhere. They boast in their crosses. They'll lift them up for you and show you their crosses. And they boast in them. They kiss them. They fall down and even worship them. That is not what is meant here by the cross. It's not the objects of wood or stone that men might be able to make or replicate. It's not boasting in the mere example of Jesus who died on the cross for his friends. As much in liberal theology would tell you, the cross is so great because it gives us an example of being kind to others and laying down our lives even for them. Well, there is a great example there. If Christ suffered to the point of death for us, what ought we to suffer for others? But that's not the primary message of the cross. That's not what Paul is boasting in, the mere example of Jesus on the cross. Nor is he boasting in a reenactment of the cross. I don't know if any of you see around Easter time, there's great displays in the, Philistine, in, Philistines, in the, in the Philippines of the, of the Roman Catholic Church in the Philippines, where those that are adherents and diehard adherents to church, they will have themselves nailed to the cross for this reason, that they might make payment themselves for their sins. And they will be hung there. They won't die there. They'll take them down when they pass out. But they'll be hung there. Because they think of the cross as that example that they actually turn the cross itself into something of the flesh to boast in. Now they're, they're using the cross to boast in themselves. This is not what is meant by Paul of boasting in the cross. Positively, Paul is saying here, he is bringing to mind the whole work of the whole Christ for our salvation. 
as it is pictured for us most abundantly and clearly throughout the Gospels in the historical record, throughout the history of Acts, throughout all the epistles and letters of the New Testament, the work of Christ that took place once and for all on the cross. And I want to draw our attention to just a few that, that Paul brings out in the book of Galatians. But first of all, first is the pardon of the cross. Or if you would like, the substitutionary atonement of the cross. That on the cross, our Savior Jesus Christ, he did not die for anything that he did. He was perfect, undefiled. Like us in every way except this, he had no sin. On the cross, he took my place. On the cross, he took his children's place because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son. And so Jesus Christ went to that cross bearing not his own guilt, but bearing the guilt of his children. Even as 2 Corinthians 5.21 would tell us, he, that is God, has made him, that is Christ, to be sin for us. He who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. He was the sin bearer. He was made sin for us. But Galatians gets even, gets even stronger in its language. In Galatians 3 and verse 13, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. On the cross... Jesus Christ was made a curse for sinners, for his children, for us, as Galatians says. That us is a remarkable word that's used. It does not mean everyone that was ever born. Paul is very keen to point out in his epistles that he is often writing to the saints. He's writing to the elect. He's writing to the elect in the churches. To you who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who have professed with your mouth what you believe in your heart, that God has raised him from the dead. This cross of Christ, this substitutionary atonement is, your, is yours. Christ Jesus has pardoned, pardoned us by his work on the cross for us. He did not just pretend there was no sin in us, but he became sin for us. He did not simply remove our sin and say, I won't remember it anymore. He paid for our sin on the cross. Every single sin that we've done or will do. Payment was made. Once and for all on the cross. By Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says. God forbid that I should boast in anything else. For there's nothing else that I have eternal life through. There's no other place I have pardoned. But on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore I boast in it. And I boast in him. But he goes even further. That on that cross. There's something particular to note. About the payment. He pardoned by making payment. And that payment was a full payment. I think this is the primary message of Galatians as it relates to the work of God. And the work of our salvation. That the payment that was made on the cross was not a, a payment that, that almost satisfied the wrath of God. Not a payment that almost would bring us nigh to God. Not a payment that would almost save. It was a payment that saved to the uttermost. Even as Jesus said in Hebrews 7.25... That he saves to the uttermost. But what was happening in the religion of the flesh is they were saying, they were saying that Jesus saves almost. And then you need to get yourself the rest of the way to glory. If that theology sounds familiar, that is Roman Catholic theology. That is what they teach, that Jesus saved from original sin. And then you, by your works, need to get yourself to glory and to eternal life. And there's no eternal life for you 
apart from your works. That's the lie of Roman Catholic theology. That's the bondage that a billion people are in because they cannot get to heaven. So they're ensnared and captives to this church and its works and duties and promises and all of its lies leading its people to hell because it denies that when Christ made payment on the cross, he made full payment. But this is the very thing that Paul is so eager to remind to remind the church in Galatia. Look at just the opening verses of Galatians in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for his sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of God our Father. He delivered and he delivered completely from the present evil age to the age to come in glory. There is nothing about your works there. This is all of grace that took place on the cross. He's also highlighting the injustice of boasting in ourselves because Christ has made full payment. There's no other payment that can be made. Children, think of this analogy. Imagine, imagine if you can wrap your mind around $1,000. Imagine that you owe somebody $1,000 and you have no money to give them. Now, what if your father or your mother took $1,000 of their own money and they went to your friend that you owed that money to and they gave them $1,000 for you in your place. How much would you have left to pay your friend? Zero. Nothing. Fully paid. In fact, if your friend then came to you and said, give me a little bit more, that would be unjust. That would be wrong because full payment had been made. This is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He made full payment for our sins. And because he's the just God requiring a sacrifice for sins, he provides himself as that sacrifice that he might be called the just and the justifier of them that are being saved. And because he's the just God, he cannot come to you as you stand before him in that great day and say, give me more for the blood of Christ saves to the uttermost. It's a full, it's a complete payment. Free from death and completely free, saved to the uttermost. Oh, all those false religions would seek to deceive. They would seek to lie. They would tell you, you've begun by the Spirit, great. Continue by the flesh, as Paul says in Galatians 3, 3. But no, no, God forbid, my boast is in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as we sing in that great hymn, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death, of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them through his blood. Boast in the cross for Paul, boasted in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pardon is made on the cross, payment is made, but there's something else that's done on the cross for us. For there, as Jesus' blood was shed, as he gave up the ghost and said it is finished, he did this, he brought us to peace with God. He reconciled us to the Father. Oh, in Galatians 4, 4, that great passage that parallels so beautifully Romans chapter 8. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ Jesus. This is the work of the cross. This is the work that Christ has done. He did not merely say not guilty on the cross, though he does. 
but he will make righteous in the fullness of time. As surely as he died on that cross, he will justify his people, imputing his righteousness to them. He, no long, he, he doesn't merely say to us, you're no longer my enemy, but he cries out to you, son, daughter, child, call upon me as your father. You once were far off. You were at enmity with me, but in Christ on the cross, God and man have been reconciled. That's the work of the cross. Not merely redeemed and far off, but brought near to the very throne room of Jesus Christ. That veil was torn at the cross that we might have access to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. What kind of peace is that? What kind of glory we have in Jesus Christ? Not merely go and sin no more, but you have an everlasting inheritance in heaven with the saints who have gone before you. This is eternal life for us. What Christ Jesus by himself did on the cross. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh to God. No wonder the psalmist boasts in Psalm 44, 8. In God we boast continually. Or as we read a few moments ago in the call to worship, my soul boasts in the Lord. It's the same in the Old as in the New Testament. They looked forward to the cross. We look back at the cross. Both of us together boast in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. My sins taken by my God and my Savior upon himself on the cross and paid fully that I might have peace with God. What greater joy is this? I boast in the cross. The Christian, how can we, how can we brothers and sisters wrap our minds around this completely? It is too wonderful a thing for us, but we glory in it, don't we? This is our hope and our joy, Christ Jesus, our all in all. He is our boast, and we will boast in him continually all the day. So we cry out to God for more of him, more of the cross. Tell me that old, old story. I want to hear it. The Christian is the one who never tires of hearing of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves it more and more as he grows older. He heard it when he was young in the pew. Now he's old in the pew and he says, yes, Lord, I boast in the cross. Tell me more about Jesus. If you've ever been with an older believer on their deathbed and what is it that they want? Read to me of the cross. Tell me of the good shepherd. Tell me of him who laid down his life for his children and was power again to raise it up. That as he rose, I might rise with him at the last day. Tell me of Jesus. Give me more of his love. That's our boast. That's our joy. If that's not your joy today, ask God for it. Ask God for joy in the Holy Ghost. If this is not your belief today, if you are trusting in your flesh today, look at it truthfully as it's presented. The end is death. But the gift of God freely of his free grace is given to you in Jesus Christ, even to all who would repent and believe in him today. Today, you can repent and your sins will be blotted out. Praise be to God. No one else can give that to you. Jesus Christ alone, who died on the cross for sinners. But before we close, we must have this warning because Paul gives us a warning at the end of verse 14. He says, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There is a consequence to boasting in the cross of Christ. It puts you in direct conflict with the world that boasts in the flesh because it's of his father, the devil. You're of your father, Jehovah God. So that puts a conflict because way back in Genesis chapter one, God said there was warfare. 
There is enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And they are never, they are never in peace. They're always at war. And so if you boast in the cross of Christ today, the world has died to you. It must be dead to you, crucified to you, that it has nothing for you. Are you boasting still in the world today? You know, way back in, in that time of the, of the start of the OPC, many men didn't leave the PCUSA because of this reason. They had too much retirement funds at stake. I get that. I have some retirement funds. I don't want to lose them. But what if that's the cost? What is that if that's the cost of holding fast to the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ? Of boasting in the cross? Are you going to hold on to money and things that are passing away and perishing? All that money is going to fly away from you or you're going to fly away from it. Will you boast it and hold fast to it? Or will you hold on to the cross of Christ? Will you say the world has nothing for me? I'm a pilgrim. I'm a stranger. I'm a wanderer. Like my fathers of old were wanderers. Going around with no appointed city because they looked for the city whose builder and maker is God. And I look for that city and I long for that city and nothing can be taken from me that has any value because I count all things as nothing and rubbish for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Has the world died to you? Are you able to give up all for the sake of Christ? But then there's there's more. Realize this. If the world is dead to you, you are dead to the world. That's how Paul concludes that verse, that he has been, the world has been crucified to him and him to the world. The world will want nothing with you. It will persecute you as it persecuted the, your fathers before you and as it crucified Christ Jesus. Do you understand this? Do you understand what may be required of you as Christians? Are you willing to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints to whatever end? That brings you the martyrs were willing to do that. Read Fox's book of martyrs. Children, I encourage you to read that a child can read it. Parents can read it to them. Look at those martyrs. They were young. They were old. They were children, men, women, slaves, free, whatever the case. They were willing to die for the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, for his glorious name. And they did die. And as they died, they went joyfully to those burning stakes or to those rivers where they would be drowned because they knew They knew that they still had the one that they boasted in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was theirs. Better yet, they were his. He had he had their names written on his hands, even as they had his name on their lips. They were willing to die. The world could do nothing for them because Christ Jesus had given to them everlasting life. Take up your cross, brothers and sisters, and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this text then is is asking this question. Clearly of us, where is our boast today? What are we boasting in? The false prophets change the gospel. The false teachers tweak the gospel. The false churches abandon the gospel. But we who are being saved believe in the glorious gospel of God concerning the Lord Jesus Christ because it is in him alone that we have the redemption of our sins and everlasting life through his blood. Boast in that. It endures. It's abiding. Confess Christ with your lips. That's the topic of our message tonight from Matthew chapter 10. Confessing Christ. Confess him, you who boast in him. And see the joyful rewards that he who confesses Christ before men, Christ will confess before his Father in heaven. Brothers and sisters, boast in the cross. If you're doing it, keep boasting. If you're trusting Christ, keep trusting. If you're looking to him like Stephen looked to him on his day of death, keep looking And one day, brothers and sisters, him who was crucified and is up in heaven that we see today with eyes of faith. One day, 
We will see with our physical eyes as we rise from the dead or meet those that are rising in the air. We will see Christ crucified in the flesh. Long for that day. Pray for that day. Look for that day. And until that great day, God forbid that any of us should boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father, we do bless and praise your holy name. For we who were dead in our trespasses to sin, you in the fullness of time sent your son to die for us. We marvel at this. We glory in it because you are all in all, our only hope, our only righteousness, the only way to glory. Our Father, please forgive us for any and all instances of trusting in the flesh or boasting in the flesh and help us with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind to boast in this, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby pardon has been made for our sins, payment to the uttermost has been made with the blood of Christ, and we can have and do have peace with you. O Lord, help us to take this glorious message to all the world that many more might come in and worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.